If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Somebody asked me uh, what I was preaching on this week, and I said, well, um, murder, (laughs) anger, adultery, lust, divorce, and swearing. Got really quiet for a moment. And I think the person said something like, good luck with that. (laughs) Better you than me. Uh, We have arrived at a portion of the Sermon on the Mount that, you know, when we read it at first blush, it's it's a little stark. It's, it's sort of challenging to us. Um, it seems like a section of, of this part of the sermon is, is it's almost, well, impossible to cover in, in one message. Many have attempted to pick apart each of those things, and you could do that. You could probably even do series on each of those sorts of things. Uh, this morning, though, I, I, while we will delve into each of those things um, with a little bit of, of detail, my, my goal would be to take uh, the, the whole uh, and maybe come to some sort of understanding as what is, what is Jesus driving us towards here. We are arriving in uh, this part of the Sermon on the Mount and we get to this section, and it's known in scholarly circles as the section where there's uh, six great antitheses. And what that means is simply that Jesus will say something like, you have heard it said of old, so something that would have come out of the law. And then, he's, then he's, he states what it is, and then he says... But I say to you, six times in the Sermon on the Mount, he does that. And the section of scripture that uh, that I want to look at this morning contains four of those. In last week's text, uh, the verses just leading up to this were in uh, chapter 5. We're going to pick up here in a minute in, in verse 21. But verse 20, Jesus He says something that's just really shocking to the people. He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you know, thanks for playing, you might as well not even try. And that would have been shocking to them because the Pharisees were the professional rule followers. That was, they lived to follow all of the rules. And Jesus says, unless you do better than them, then, you know, have a nice day. I can imagine they bristled a little bit with that and like, what are you talking about, Jesus? That just seems crazy. See, the, the Pharisees, they loved the law. And historically speaking, the, the people of Israel held the law. They held the word of God in really high regard. They patterned their life after it. They, they lived by what was in, written in, in this book. The sermon title today is uh, People of the Text. How, how do we need to set up our lives to really, really be people of the text? The, the longest psalm, it's uh, Psalm number 119, it's all about how much the people loved the law. And the law wasn't written um, to create a long list of rules for people to follow and be able to check off their moral checklist every single day. The, the law was given to the people so that it would be an expression of God's presence with them through the law. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. You have laid down precepts 
that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. See, the, the law, the law was given not to be this huge burden of weight to bear. The law was given to direct people into experiencing the joy of the Lord and his way, through his way of living. And the Pharisees, that's what they, they set their lives up so that they could fulfill the law. They had this extremely high regard for it, and yet Jesus challenged them on it. Why did he challenge them on it? Because they had gone past, they, they missed the intent of the law. That it was given to do that effective heart change inside of them. And so they started following the law just so that they could check off their list and be morally upright. And it was a way of posturing themselves over and above other people. Hey, we follow the law way better than you do. Look at us. The people recognized that. I would say they, they had this high view of the word, but we might be, our culture, our society might be in a slightly different place than the Pharisees. And, and so over time, we sort of tend to drift away. And so maybe the rightful place of the word is, is here, held high, lifted up, authoritative, in how we think and live and behave. But, you know, there's this personal autonomy thing that we deal with, and so we drift a little bit. And the word, mm, what I want, what I think, my opinion, my understanding. And over time, we might drift away from the authority of the, the word of God. I was, um, <clears throat> I was reading some articles this week. There was one in uh, Psychology Today, and it was uh, a study that was uh, done by uh, a joint effort between the Cornell and Harvard medical schools. And the premise of the article was that entitled people will disregard rules that other people will follow. They suggest that the underlying reason for this was our narcissistic tendencies. And so when that sets in and we see the rules that are in place, the laws that are all around us, we make, we make a judgment on the laws that are all around us and we feel like they're oppressive to us and they're not fair to us and so they should not apply. As an example of that, I, I found a... <clears throat> I found this uh, study or this report, it's an OSHA report from 2014, and it showed, this is going to surprise you, I know, it showed that employees who admit to regularly breaking the safety rules are involved in workplace accidents three times more than their rule-following counterparts. Shocking, right? Our family, yeah, I talk about it every so often, we love visiting the national parks. Significant beauty in the parks. Wonderful things to see. It's also a really good place to people watch. And Yellowstone, we were there a couple years back. Yellowstone is a unique place. There's all sorts of dangerous things in Yellowstone National Park. Cliffs, geysers, pools of burning sulfur water, uh, buffalo, other wild animals. And the park service does a phenomenal job of posting signs all over the place to alert you to all of the dangers. Stay 
on the boardwalk. If you go off the boardwalk, you might fall in one of these sulfur pits and all your skin is going to melt off. Don't go within so many feet of the buffalo. They can hurt you. But if you stay there long enough, you watch people climbing over the banister, getting off of the boardwalk so that they can, you know, go, I got to get a really good picture of this over here. There's some of the pools there that have sunglasses, phones, hats in them because people have disregarded the rules because, hey, that's oppressive to me. That is imposing on my rights. This is not fair. Look at me. I can handle this. I know what's safe for me. A guy died a couple years ago because he fell off one of those things. He got too close and fell in. Every year, if you tune into the news or read some articles, you know that at least a couple people get gored by a buffalo. We were there, and you know, you're, you're in your car, and you're going, and there's buffalo jams there, because lots of them will start to cross the paths, and you know, you don't want to get in their way. You know, they can overturn your car. They can do some damage, and so you wait. And while you wait, some geniuses, they get out of their car, and they go towards the buffalo, because, you know, hey, I got to get a picture with the buffalo, buffalo selfie, right? And those buffaloes are fast. And when you have your back to them, and they start charging you, it's too late. They catch you by surprise. There's a resistance that we have to following rules because they oppress us for some reason. And so I think that we're in a different place today than during the time of the Pharisees. I don't, I don't think that we need to hear a message that the rules won't save us. What I want you to consider is that I think we are more at risk of something called antinomianism than legalism. Now, that's a big word, antinomianism. Let me break it down for you. Antinomos, against the law. And so we have this resistance. We are, we're more against guidelines, rules, whatever you want to label them, because we feel like they're fencing us in. And so we like to turn to this um, belief that uh, we can make up our own rules as we go along. Our, our problem isn't really an overemphasis on the, the known law of God or, or rules out in society. It's this new notion that I'm concerned about that we can pick and choose, make up our own, do as we please. As evidence, I would submit to you and my police officer friends in the room will probably uh, give me a big amen, but I would submit to you as an example traffic and following the traffic laws. Am I right? Amen. Do, we, do, we not, do we not pick and choose which traffic laws we're going to choose to follow in any given moment? I mean, I will confess. I looked down at my speedometer this morning and... I was not going the speed limit. I know. I know. Statute of limitations, I can't get written up for it, right? <laughs> Maybe I should say amen and have a nice day. I've been known to preach a 55-minute sermon in a 45-minute zone. Um, I have been cited for that. Paid my fine. There was legislation to change the speed limit zone to 35, and I vetoed it. <laughs> so for today, maybe we're going to go 65 and a 45. Isn't it true, though, when you drive around, you can observe 
people who think that their progress, that their, their right, is that they can do whatever they want as long as it gets them to where they're going on time. Come up behind you, flashing their lights. You know, hey, get out of my way. Hey, you know, I don't really need to stop at that stop sign. I'm just going to kind of roll through it because that's what I feel like doing. We like other people to follow the law so that there's some semblance of order, but we like to pick and choose which ones we're going to follow. It's just, it's just true. And so we're at a place now in culture and society and our thinking that, hey, we can, we can do what we, we can do what we want. So why is there such a resistance to following the rules? When, when this kind of thinking bleeds over into our faith, we begin to resist all of the things that God commands us to do, to think, to behave. We stop believing that what God calls sin is actually sin. And somehow we think that we get to be the determiners of what sin is and what sin is not. And so, you know, I'm going to just I'm going to erase that one and change the wording because it suits me a little bit better. Why do we do this? Well, I think we want to feel better about ourselves. Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Well, what are you measuring good against? <laughs> Your set of criteria or God's? We think there's an arrogance about those who come across as self-righteous, rule-following legalists, but I'd say there's just as much arrogance in those who say, I'm the only one who knows what's right for me. There, there's an arrogance in those who say, my opinion is the measure of all things. There's an arrogance in those who say, I'm just going to make it up as it goes along to fit my needs in the moment. These sorts of people, they resist anything that limits their own, their own ego. So we're in a little different place, I think, today than the Pharisees were in the time when Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount. Paul talked about this. He said that there would be a day. He was talking to his protege, Timothy. If you want to write it down, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, about verse 3, 4, 5. Um, he says that there would be a time when people were going to, to not put up with sound doctrine any longer. That they were going to go out and they were going to look for teachers who were going to present them with a doctrine that would tickle their ears, that would be more palatable. Paul talked about this day coming. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, a theologian, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And one of the most striking things that he talks about is is, uh, it's called cheap grace as compared to costly grace. And cheap grace takes sin lightly. And if sin is taking, taken lightly, then the salvation that Jesus provides for us is also cheap. Costly grace comes from a realization of the greatness of our sin, which allows us then to see how magnificent and how beautiful and how great the gospel actually is. I can't say it better than Bonhoeffer himself, so I, I brought a little bit of an excerpt as he talks about this. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. The gospel makes much of sin because Jesus died to redeem us from our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. And the more we can appreciate sin, the more we can appreciate grace. The more we can appreciate the gospel and what Jesus and that Jesus died because he didn't die a horrific death on the cross to show us that sin didn't matter. We see the cost of sin at the cross. When we start to pick and choose which laws, which commands of God will follow, when we begin to cross out the ones we don't like or change the wording on them, we're cheapening the grace that God lavished upon us. We, we resist in all sorts of ways. Sometimes we, know, sometimes we know that what we're doing is sin, but we go ahead and we fly through that stop sign that says, don't do that, don't do that. And you say in the moment, well, that stop sign doesn't really apply to me right now because it makes me happy, it makes me feel good, whatever it is. We blow through that stop sign and we know, and we make some sort of a comment, well, you know, there's grace for that. God will forgive me. And you go ahead and you do it anyway. That cheapens grace. Grace is costlier than that. It costs Jesus his life. It's not anything that I think that we should take lightly. Those are the moments when you know that it's sin and you go ahead and do it anyway. That's a clear violation Somehow, you know, we like to push back on that or try and redefine it. Paul says we shouldn't do this. He says, should we go on sinning because grace will increase? He says, no, no. You've died to sin. You don't have to live in it any longer. Don't cheapen the grace of God. You are no longer slaves to sin. So these are all really good things, I think, to set the table to look into this really sort of difficult teaching that Jesus delivers to the people gathered on the hillside that day. His teaching might make you feel uncomfortable, might offend you a little bit, you might want to resist it. And I know we don't like to be offended, and we don't want to say anything that's going to offend anybody anymore. But if we say that we're going to be a people of the text, it means that we're going to align our lives with what's in the Word of God and not the Word of God with what's in our lives. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to pull up a chair here, and let's, let's look into this. We're in Matthew chapter 5, in uh, verse 21 here. Do not think... You know, verse 21, I said, I couldn't read here. You have heard that it was said to the, pro- to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, or you could translate that as idiot. What an idiot. Listen to this. Idiot, or the word there, means uh, empty-headed. So this was like a huge insult during the day. Anyone who says something like that is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool... 
will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's pretty steep punishment for name-calling, isn't it? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. We read that part and we just kind of gloss over it. But Jesus was teaching this where? In sort of Galilee area, right? You know where the altar is? The altar's in Jerusalem. The altar that Jesus is talking about is the one in the temple in Jerusalem. So if he's talking to people on the hillside and they, they are going to the altar, they're, they're in Jerusalem, likely they're, whoever they've offended is probably where? Back in Galilee. That's like a three-day journey. Jesus is using this amplified language. He's getting their attention because it seems, you know, it would be lodged in their mind like, well, that's sort of impractical. I'm going to leave a squawking bird or whatever at the altar for three days to get there. Reconciliation is not a fast process, is it? It takes patience on the part of a couple people, a willingness, and then it's a three-day journey back. He's got their attention here. Reconciliation is important. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus here, remember, has just told the people that they needed to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were famous for creating all sorts of ingenious ways, loopholes, if you will, to get around the intentions of God's word. Um, the, the loopholes to maintain their appearance of, of looking righteous on the outside while harboring you know, sinful attitudes on the inside. Technically speaking, they were following the law. They just felt justified to blur the edges of truth. Jesus says, you've got to do better than the Pharisees. And this is, this, is what it's, this is what it looks like that we're getting into. Jesus is not abolishing the law. He's not saying the law uh, is no more. But he's teaching them a more full, a more true interpretation and a proper application of, of the law. He's amplifying it. He, he, reels, he reveals to them what it looks like for somebody to fully follow the intent of the law, that it will change their heart, and it'll, it'll address their, their, their inner motivations and their o obedience. And they'll begin to see that the law wasn't um, set up necessarily in, in a legalistic way. The law was there to be more relational in nature. And so when we understand the law from more of a relational perspective, we see in all of these things that, that Jesus is trying to maintain the integrity of, of human relationships. So when we look at this teaching on murder, he quotes the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. He, affirm, he affirms that you shouldn't murder another person. And then he amplifies it and, and he equates anger with murder. That's... That's hard right there. How many of you have been angry with somebody this morning, this last week, you know, this last month? It's, it's, it's hard for us to, to say anything other than, yes, I'm guilty of anger. You can kill a person with your words, with what you say about them. You can diminish a person's character by name-calling. You can assassinate their character with your words. I mean, it's a blatant disregard for human life when you pick people apart in this way. It devalues their humanity. Slander is absolutely devastating. 
And Jesus teaches that we should see the value in every human person, that we should see the image of God in each and every person, that we should seek their good, that we should affirm their worth by pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness, even if it costs us, even if it costs us. True disciples, Jesus says, not only avoid murder, but are transformed so that they do not strip away the personhood and identity of others through their anger. True disciples work towards reconciliation in broken relationships. And Jesus knows that it takes time, that it takes patience on the part of both parties. But he uses this language of urgency. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. He, he talks about the weight of glory. And he says that we should promote our neighbor's glory. And, and I don't know if, about you, but the weight of glory of my neighbor, that's, that's a heavy load. When we put others ahead of ourselves, that, that is a heavy load. And it's a load that only humility that will carry. And so we see how Jesus is encouraging healthy relationships and he's teaching us to be people of humility. He goes on, verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We're on issue two now. Doesn't get much easier, does it? Jesus quotes the seventh commandment here. He says, to look at another lustfully is to commit adultery in one's heart. Adultery first happens in the heart, is what Jesus says, before it is expressed through your body. So why is, why is that an issue? Well, you can, see, you can objectify and you can manipulate another person in your mind. You can fixate on them and, and begin to treat them like a commodity to be used and controlled for your own selfish desires. And Jesus uses really drastic language to deal with this. He says, cut it out. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. Now, that's a bit of hyperbole. You can gouge out your eyes and you can cut off your hand and you can still sin. Because it begins in your heart. And so the picture that Jesus leaves us with is, okay, most of us, if we're totally honest, we would not be able to see and we wouldn't have any hands. If we poke out our eyes and we cut off our hands. Um, we'd be a silly looking crowd. But we wouldn't see each other and so it would be all good. <laughs> the image, though, stands. Jesus uses drastic language. He says, cut it out. And if he says that the issue is a matter of the heart, then if we take Jesus to his logical end to get rid of that kind of lust, we would have to, what? Cut out our heart. And if we cut out our heart, what happens? We die. Sin will lead to death. This kind of sin takes radical action. True disciples not only shun physical acts of adultery, but are so completely committed to God's purpose for sexual purity and for marriage that they have eyes and hands only for their spouse or future spouse. And they discipline every thought and action to be singly focused in that direction. That's really what Jesus is saying here. He goes on. 
Look at verse 33. It says again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is the his, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. I'm doing a pretty good job with the white, but I guess I don't have anything to do with it. All you need is to say simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus says true disciples ought to be truthful, be people of integrity. You shouldn't need to swear an oath to confirm your trustworthiness. In that culture, uh, some people felt free to lie unless they had actually spoken the name of God out loud. Now, most Jews tried to avoid pronouncing the name of God out loud, and so they would use another version of it that sounded sort of close to it. So people would think that they were swearing by God, but they, were, they, were, they didn't actually say his name out loud. So they would, one example Jesus says is they would, they would make an oath and they would swear by heaven. So it seems like, oh yeah, I'm swearing by God. No, I swore by heaven. And so technically, that's the loophole. I didn't say God's name. And so they felt free that they could just go on lying. They could swear an oath, make a promise, but do something completely different because they hadn't actually said God's name out loud. And Jesus is pretty clear here. Do not swear these kinds of oaths at all. Live your life in such a way that your yes means yes and your no means yo. No, be honest in everything that you do. Just live that way. What is acceptable is telling the truth and being a person of such integrity that no oath is necessary to validate your word. That's what Jesus is saying. All right, now look at verse 31. You thought I was going to skip over those two verses, didn't you? You know me better than that. It's in the book. We're going to go ahead and talk about it. Now, Jesus is going to challenge the misapplication of the Old Testament provision for divorce. And this is, this is what he says. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Hmm. Okay, Jesus, <laughs> what are you talking about? And I want to be really sensitive with this because in a group of any size these days, um, most people have some interaction experience with divorce, whether it's... Um, Growing up in a household that was ripped apart by divorce, maybe it's personal first-hand experience, maybe it's just simply struggling with a friend or you know another family member who has who has gone through that. So these days, you know, it's about fifty percent of marriages that are going to end in divorce. And so as time goes on, more and more people in this room, I would venture to say that most of us have some experience in dealing with this, personally or, or with a friend. Did you see that Jesus, he holds a couple things in tension. And this is really important for a church to navigate the two things that Jesus holds in tension well. Jesus, on the one hand, upholds and affirms the permanence of marriage, that that's God's intent. And so he clearly, he clearly holds that up. Marriage is held in extremely high regard. But he also holds that intention with a message of grace. And you can't lose that part. 
And throughout the history of the church, we haven't always done a really good job of holding those two things in tension. On the one hand, we could be overly legalistic about it and just utterly bruise people and wound them. And in many cases, shun and turn people away who this is part of their story. But on the other hand, we've also, maybe the pendulum swings to the side of grace and, you know, and, and so we've affirmed maybe a sloppy definition of the permanence and the sanctity of marriage that God sets up. And so we have to learn how to hold those two things in tension and, and Jesus does it really well. And so he's, he's there and um, he, he, says, he makes this statement and I know there's not really any easy answers and, and we wrestle with Jesus' you know, sort of firm stance here on, on divorce and we know that he was clearly not in favor of it but he didn't forbid it. He acknowledged the provision um, that Moses gave, and he, he said that divorce is granted on matters of sexual infidelity. And, um, and those two things, if you, if you think about them and you think them through, they're, they're deviations from what God had intended. That they are fracturing of relationships, and the, the things that we've talked about so far, we can see that Jesus is clearly in favor of preserving human relationship. And he clearly knows that humans abuse each other and hurt each other and wound each other. And in the confines of marriage, that sometimes it gets away from us that the life-giving intent that God had set up in the design of marriage, sometimes humans will fracture that and tarnish it and just bust it apart. And so there's the word of grace that there are times when to remain in a marriage is to suffocate and to die, which just goes against God's intent. And it's, it's not that the institution of marriage is flawed. It's that there's two flawed people in the institution of marriage. And so Jesus recognizes that sometimes we're going to screw it up. <laughs> And we're not going to do so well with it. And so he offers a word of grace. So with that said, um, Jesus is, he's, what he's doing, he's directly challenging the casual nature of divorce that had kind of creeped in to that society. There were a couple rabbis, um, Shammai and Hillel, and Hillel was one, he had a looser definition of divorce, and he taught that one could, one could grant a certificate of divorce to his wife if she burned his dinner. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's silly. And Jesus is directly addressing that casual nature. of You know, the, marriage means something a whole lot more than that. You can't just get out of it, in and out of marriage, because, you know, on, on a whim, People are not expendable when, when you feel like you need something different to make you happy. And what I want you to notice is that, is that Jesus' teaching on divorce falls between two things. And I put it in this order intentionally because I wanted to talk about lust and integrity first because Jesus' teaching on divorce falls between what he said about lust and, um, and what he says about in a life of integrity and trustworthiness and truthfulness. Both of those things are in some ways more basic issues than what we're dealing with in divorce. And T. Wright suggests, he knows this too, he says this may be making the point that if people knew how to control their bodily lusts on the one hand and were committed to complete integrity and truth-telling on the other, there would be, a f there would be fewer, if any, divorces. Because divorce normally happens when lust and lies have been allowed to grow up like weeds and choke the fragile and beautiful plant of marriage. So let me, let me say something really specific, pointed primarily at those of you in this room who are married. But those of you who are in a, a relationship 
uh, or someday we'll be in a relationship and, and, and on down the line you'll be married. You can, you can take some notes as well, but there's, there's two things that, that I want you to write down. One is deal ruthlessly with lust. Jesus went after that one hard. Cut it out. Jesus doesn't say you'll never have an impulse of lust when you look at someone attractive. The wisest thing that the pastor, my youth pastor, who, who helped Lisa and I through our premarital counseling, one of the wisest things he said was just because you walk down the aisle and say, I do, it doesn't mean that all the beautiful people in the world just disappear. There's beautiful people all around. But you have to discipline yourself and control yourself. What Jesus commands is for us to avoid a lustful gaze, allowing our imaginations to get out of control. So the first thing you married folks do is deal ruthlessly with lust when it sneaks up on you. And number two is resolve to tell the truth to yourself. Speak truth to yourself and speak truth to your spouse. These two things will, will help you stay together through most of the difficult challenges that your marriage will face. I'm convinced I'm convinced that if the church had done a better job at teaching these things all along we might have much less of a problem than what we do. Now, these four teachings they're pretty difficult, right? They got pretty quiet in here. I sort of knew that was going to happen because you know when when these when we're confronted with these sorts of things which most of us wrestle with. Three out of the four, all of us wrestle with and deal with. We might live in, you know, when we, when we think about our, the Bible and the Bible times, I think sometimes, if you're like me, I, I think that well, they just lived in a more antiquated society, and that was a long time ago, and we're so much more sophisticated now. We're, we're so much more advanced than those people back then. But when we strip all of our technology away, all of our scholarship away, all, all of our science, when you strip all of that away, we're wrestling with the same exact human issues. Murder, anger, lust, adultery, divorce, integrity. We might be more advanced, but we're still needy in the exact same ways as those people. I'm just stunned by the brilliance of Jesus' teaching. It's timeless. It's for all people, for every place, every society. What he taught in these words, it still absolutely applies today. He didn't, he didn't produce programs to deal with these issues at the time that, 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 oh, as time went on, would become antiquated and outdated. He went, to the very, he went to the very heart of the issue, the heart of the matter. And all four of these things that Jesus addresses come down to being heart issues. The good news... The good news, then, for today is that the grace of God abounds. Did you hear that? The grace of God abounds. The grace is not cheap. God paid a steep price for our salvation, for our forgiveness. Jesus paid for all of that with his life, but he paid it nonetheless for you and for me. And, and you can have new life through Jesus. Don't keep sinning because there is grace. Don't think that you're too far gone. Don't think that all the things you've done can never be forgiven. Don't ever think that you can't be forgiven now when you mess up. There's grace for you. It's not the excuse to go on sinning, but it's really good to know that when you do succumb and when you do fail and when you do sin, that Jesus already has that paid for. And you have to go to him and you have to repent. 
And if you've wronged somebody, then you go to them and you make it right and you apologize. What we want you to hear is that in Christ there is forgiveness, that there is a new beginning. Your past is part of your story. Yes, that's true, but it doesn't have to define your future. There is new life. So here's the challenge for all of us. I, I titled the sermon People of the Text for a reason. Um, I want you to hold God's word in really high regard. Read it. Learn it. Live it. Become people of the text. You know, Scripture, if you think about it, Scripture is what, what part of grammar is Scripture? It's a noun, right? Scripture is a noun, a thing, the Bible, God's Word. We usually always use the word Scripture as a noun. But what I want you to consider, here's the challenge, what I want you to consider is to make Scripture into a verb. I want you to Scripture the verb to scripture, or scripturing. I am scripturing. I am living to be faithful to the living God who has given us his word and who continues to be present among us. The people had Torah, not as a list of rules, but as an expression of the active presence of God in their life. And so if we are people who are scripturing, we are acknowledging that we are people of the text. We acknowledge that we recognize that God is with us. We acknowledge that he is helping us to live more faithfully amongst one another and more faithfully with him. I'm going to be a person of the text. Let's begin to reverse the trend that's in our world that minimizes what God says and maximizes personal feelings and preference and autonomy. Let's all say, I am scripturing. Can you say that? I am scripturing. We're scripturing as witnesses to how God is actively present and at work in our lives, in our church, and in this world. And people of God said, Amen. Amen.